Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. I recorded this episode remotely on April 2nd, 2022, with writer, professor, scholar, Pragita Sharma. Pragita was in her home in Claremont, California, and I was in mine in Washington Heights, New York. Pragita Sharma is the author of several amazing poetry collections, Undergloom, Infamous Landscapes, The Opening, Bliss to Fill, and most recently, Grief Sequence, published in 2019 by Wave Books. She is also the founder of Thinking Its Presence, an interdisciplinary conference on race, creative writing, and artistic and aesthetic practices. I've known and admired Pragita's work for years, and always enjoyed seeing and speaking with her at literary events in and near New York City. Since moving away, we've kept in touch over Twitter and through mutual friends, but we haven't seen each other in person for years. In this conversation, Pragita and I talk about the death of her husband Dale in 2014, and how she wrote in, during, and through that grief in her book, Grief Sequence. We talk about grief, dying, subsequent love, the incredible conference she started, surviving discrimination in academia, the abject lyric, the neutral lyric, what she's working on now. It was a joy to speak with Brigitte, and a pleasure listening and re-listening to this conversation. In addition to learning how to be a better poet, I think I learned how to be a better ex-wife. For this episode, all Commonplace patrons will get access to three prompts Pragita created that mirror her writing process, as well as a recording of Pragita reading Glacier National Park and The Elegy. All listeners will receive 15% off their purchase of Grief Sequence from Wave Books if they use the code B. W.L.S. Some member of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following. Grief Sequence by Pragita Sharma, courtesy of Wave Books. Undergloom, Infamous Landscapes, and The Opening Question, all by Pragita Sharma, courtesy of Fence Books. Bliss to Fill by Pragita Sharma, courtesy of Sub Press. Dorothy Wong's Thinking Its Presence on Asian American Subjectivity and Poetry, courtesy of Stanford University Press, and Matthew Salas's Craft in the Real World, Rethinking Fiction Writing and Workshopping, courtesy of Catapult. To become a Commonplace patron, please visit commonpodcast.com or patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast. If you'd like to make a larger one-time donation, or if you'd like to talk to us about helping to make Commonplace financially sustainable, please email us at rachel at commonpodcast.com. Additionally, the next six people to become a patron at the level of $20 or more a month, or who raise their current monthly pledge to $20 or more, will receive a bundle of the Bagley Wright Lecture Books published to date. Before I share this fabulous conversation with Pragita, I want to let you know about TalkEasy. 
Here on Commonplace, I love talking to creative people about their lives. Talk Easy is also a podcast about who we are and who we become. Driven by curiosity, compassion, and research, Talk Easy is a place where people sound like people. Each Sunday, Sam Fragoso invites actors, writers, activists, and musicians to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Sam has episodes with Ocean Vuong, David Byrne, Nikki Giovanni, and most recently, Rupi Kaur. Rupi shares with Sam how she evolved from girl to woman in writing her best-selling collection, Milk and Honey, and how the pressures of success caused writing to go from something safe to something triggering for her and how she found her way back to the page. Stay tuned until the end of this episode to hear a special preview of Sam's conversation with Rupi. You can listen to the full episode of Talk Easy and more from Talk Easy wherever you get your podcasts. After this conversation with Prigita, you'll also hear another listener testimonial. This one comes to us from Noah, a person I dated before I met my newly beloved. Okay, here's Prigita Sharma. But maybe we could start in the present and and hear like where you are physically and emotionally and cognitively. Oh, Rachel, it's so nice to be chatting with you in the present right now. And it, it feels like a conversation of just catching up that I've wanted to do with you for the last 10 years. So yeah, I guess starting in the present, um, I just wanted to acknowledge um, just how happy I am to that that you you and I were able to find the time to do this. Um, I'm, I live in Claremont now, Claremont, California. Um, I'm just six blocks from Pomona College. I moved here in 2019 from University of Montana, Missoula. And I, I Mike and I, my, Mike, my partner, um, and I live here. Um, we do, we sometimes try to be in Seattle where he's a part-time resident. We just, um, you know, as I think I've told you, and I'm, I'm more public about it, I've been public about it um, because he's given me permission. But, um, you know, we're, we're negotiating um, a stage four diagnosis of bile duct cancer, which is an aggressive, rare cancer um, that, um, you know, that, that has changed. I mean, it, it's exactly a year um, today that we got, uh, well, we got a more, we, we got a c- confirmed diagnosis maybe, um, you know, a, a week just a week from now last year but we were wrestling with it this weekend and we did we knew he had a mass in his liver but but so so it's very confusing to be returning to cancer again but I've um, I'm grateful that we've we've looked at a year now so presently I'm just I'm just full of gratitude uh, to be able to care give um, but also have a, a functional uh, partnership right now with with a terminal illness. So that's where I am right now, and I'm writing poems. And I feel like I've just, you know, I turned fifty, and I just feel like I'm you know, more candid and more 
Like I just want to be in the present moment, um, being myself as much as possible and not feeling bad about it. Ah, <laughs> oh, Prakita, I love that so much. You know, before we even go further, I want to thank you so much for taking the time, you know, between teaching and Mike's illness and writing and all of the other roles that you have, which I, you know, want to hear more about. It's been difficult. It's been difficult for both of us, but, but particularly for you to, to, to even make the kind of mental space, I think for this. And I love what you're saying about uh, congratulations on turning 50. I turned 50 <laughs> in at the end of December. Um, and, and really am, am, I think that's so beautifully said about like, I feel like I don't have the time to beat around the bush to, you know, to get the recording just right. Um, and I, I just have to be myself. And and I, I was thinking even as, as you were talking about being in the present about how many times you and I have met in the present, but not but like almost asynchronously in the present. Yes. And I was thinking in particular, you know, it used to be, I don't even know how long ago we saw each other last in physical form, but we used to see each other sometimes at poetry readings. We would see each other, you know, at Katie Letterer's yeah. uh, place. Like I have a memory of seeing you at, at Katie's. Um, and then we didn't see each other for a while. And and maybe we would see each other at AWP or we would communicate online. And then I remember this experience of quote unquote, seeing you when grief sequence came out and, and reading the book. And I have a very strong memory actually, for some reason of reading the book uh, in the bathtub <laughs> um, and underlining things and, 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 and like sort of, consuming it or inhaling it, but also feeling a feeling, and I, I can talk about this later, uh, of resistance to the book, uh, both to the contents of the book and in some ways to the, to the feeling, not so much to the death and the grief, but to the love. Mm. Um, and that was very difficult for me at that time. I was in still I was still married and very unhappy and uh it, so it was a it was sort of like a complicated seeing um sure and and also feeling in a way seen by you even though which I think is such a magic thing about poetry and about about reading or that kind of deep reading like I almost felt like you've had this experience that I have not had but I almost felt seen by you like, okay, okay, Rachel, in your bathtub, in your apartment on the Upper West Side, you know, in your not very happy marriage, like, this is what I see. Um, I felt seen by the book. I felt seen, I felt seen um, by you. You know, you and I also communicated when I was having my cancer scare and I didn't know if it was going to be cancer or cancer scare. We communicated a little bit um, on Twitter. And then when I heard, you know, this terrifying news um, about a second, you know, 
terminal, potentially terminal cancer in your life um, with your partner, you know, it was sort of like, are we going to do the recording at this moment, at this moment, at this moment, at this moment. And then I reread your book last week. Uh, and I'll say more about this, but I, I have fallen madly in love. Um, and I, I, I just, I had a completely different experience of grief sequence. And I, I, I really, I, I started just like, crying and talking out loud and reading the book out loud to my partner and um that's the first time i've ever called him my partner but i i'm doing that um uh he is my partner so it's it's so fascinating that had we recorded at any of those previous present moments the recording would be different and yet i feel like this moment contains all of those past encounters in some way Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful that you've fallen in love because I have to say, I don't know if Grief Sequence would have been written if I didn't fall in love. Because I think I would have been uh, trapped in one narrative of review. And I think that the, the way I learned uh, to think about my grief as an opening changed i mean changed the trajectory of of my own perspective um so I, you know one thing i was i think a, a question um that we would be grappling with together is you know what what allows one to be open to new experiences and one thing that i i found with a lot of widowed people is because they hadn't been planning on losing their spouse they believed in love in a kind of way. Um, I mean, as we can get into with grief sequence, Dale was super complicated and how I see him now seven years out versus how I saw him, you know, the first three months, six months, one year, two years. Um, I, I had to do a lot of therapy to really process the trauma of, of who he was and what I enabled. Um, so there was grief of losing him, but there was grief of losing who I thought he was. And so I became receptive to somebody who could be entirely different, who could teach me how to, who, you know, who, who could, who could teach me how to love the way I, I didn't get to the way I thought I was, but wasn't actually the reality. Uh, this is this is very 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 profound. I, I was hoping that maybe you could read a few poems from the very beginning of the book, because I think it I think it's going to be helpful for people to just hear the the tone and and then we can talk about sort of the story of the book and what was happening to you when you started writing it. Sure, sure. I'll I'll read a few of these and we can see how that goes. Um, and this poem is after Alice Notley, who, I mean, I, I studied her poems at, um, while I was grieving. Um, and I always, I always refer to her as a double widow, you know, and there is a way in which she just teaches me so much in her poems. Um, I don't know if it's fair to phrase it that way, but it was what stuck with me. Just being widowed twice is a whole thing, um, I think. 
on seclusion and looking out after Alice Notley. Seclusion may kill your heart in the process of producing the love-stained stench in your poems, the ones containing boundaries of shame with their sober problems, bits describing loss, mirroring its inward entanglements, glow torches you have never seen before. You light them with two selves and don't wait for anything to flicker false. You can discern the lantern of a falling man who burned down his desire with tiny humiliated gestures. The mountain peak so high, thus you believe it gives you the one majestic evening you earned. Its embrace is a gentle coercion into wide wilderness, an amenable tyranny of its expansion, grief's artillery to fill all of the black clouds, that sallow blue sky, painting it with electric photographic sweeps. You have to find your strength in this. I think I'll read, I'll just read the complicated spiritual grief part one and part two, because they kind of, they go to, they go together. <laughs> complicated spiritual grief part one. It was violent and it wasn't. It was violent because it was the kind of cancer to which people refer as beastly, as pure evil. And though I do not really believe in a Christian God or devil, I was left facing one. I'm a non-believer. When I faced it, all I had was his past before the cancer and what was leading up to it, which led me down his rabbit hole, which may have included a brain tumor and many other tumors, all the spindly parts, tumor-shaped, even things painted for me by his admirers, some faulty, some careless, spindly grievers. I couldn't look at any of them as they kept metastasizing, but that was an action I knew was not mine to claim, but through my affections for my beloved. How could I not love some of his friends or students? How is it that I settle on these feelings as he disappears? Complicated Spiritual Grief, Part 2 because I am the kind of believer who believes in the culture around me, I was watching for fragments to arise out of our habits, such as watching madmen, or thinking about madmen, as Dale always said, men who are always falling from buildings out of fear, anguish, alcoholism, a particular self-destruction from self-annihilation, pinhole pains. Like in Cassavetti's Husbands, there were these men, I found his notes for teaching that film, and at first I thought it was his personal confession. But it wasn't. It was a list of teaching notes. Infidelity, vomiting, being a father, being a husband. I thought about his sonic piece titled Sorry About the Rage. I was sorry about it, too. So what now? I grieve. I lust for company that I can't ask for. I turn into my own madman. Can I do this? Did he enter my body, his energy? Can I be him lusting for himself? I mean, it's really, it's such a powerful opening to the book. I, I want to, it's so funny because I was listening to some interviews and reading some interviews with you. Um, and one of the things that I noticed was that interviewers tend to go back and forth with this book between the content and the form, mm. almost as if it's too much for them to handle the content, you know, to talk about the death part, the love part, mm -hmm. the, 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 the anger, the, you know, the grief. Um, 
And so then they're like, well, how did you, you know, decide to write in prose? Um, and here I, here I am again about to say, I want to sort of give the listener a sense that, that uh, the book opens uh, with the poems that you just heard. And they're very beautifully kind of small in a certain way on the page in a prose form. The book does not stay entirely in prose. But, and, and, you know, I want to talk about, well, what was happening when you f were writing those initial poems? Yeah, I think I, I was writing in prose, which was new for me to do. Um, it, I think at first I was writing a kind of a epistolary to, to Dale. So there was an address to a you, but I slowly started to remove that address because I, some of them were were fraught with my being so hurt by ad the address itself um, that I had to work through trying to figure out what I was trying to claim for myself um, in the in the prose. But you know, I, I, for 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 people listening, you know, Dale was diagnosed in November of 2014 with stage four, late stage four esophageal cancer. Um, and he died two months later. And there were so many complications. And he was trying, he would really, he wouldn't let me into the doctor's office. Uh, he wouldn't let me talk to our oncologist. And I think it was out of shame and out of, out of a disbelief himself that he was dying, even though he knew he was dying, I didn't realize he was dying. Mm. I was in denial about what dying looked like, which, you know, most people are when they're trying to save somebody. So we only rec we can often just recognize the state of dying after somebody dies sometimes and not everybody, but so I was intent on keeping him alive. And so I there, I thought we had a lot longer time to have real conversations about what was happening. Um, and so some of the processing of the poems is a state of shock in trying to you know, one day he was here and the next day he wasn't. One day I, you know, so I think that the first three months, I couldn't remember my marriage at all before the cancer. So there was just a shock and that, that, that prose allowed me to process without, I, poems in lyric form or in form felt a little too extravagant at, you know, the first year. You know, I'm interested if you feel comfortable talking about this. I mean, we all know we're going to die, but we don't know when. Yeah. And we don't know how long we have. And it's interesting to me that over the course of time, there have been sort of different conventions about telling someone's wife but not the patient or in this case the opposite, right? Like you weren't, you weren't let into the prognosis. And then there are some doctors who refuse, refuse, refuse to give a prognosis in terms of a timeline, either to the patient or to the family. And this question feels relevant, right? Because your experience, it was I mean, not knowing that it's going to be two months, but knowing he was really sick. And this question of like, are you supposed to be trying to save him? Are you supposed to be trying to have these conversations? Are you supposed to be, you know, focused on yourself? Are you like, 
Yeah. I mean, well, I've learned a lot since then. So what I realized is there's like a kind of a chasm of what I just didn't understand and what was going on. Like I got a lot of information when he started to lose consciousness and we, you know, we were working with a palliative care doctor. Um, and in, because we're working with a palliative care doctor, um, they're putting things in place for me so that I, I, even if I'm not processing it, it's happening. I, I think, you know, we had to do the, um, Oh, the form. What is the form? The do not resuscitate form. Mm. So that was the first, I mean, and, 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 and Dale signed it. And when you, you know, if, if people have done this, I, you might have done this with, you, you know, I, you know, I know what you've gone through with, with passing and, and your mother and, um, mm-hmm. but so, so that was the, the first indication that we were starting to work and live there with that conversation. But I, I really thought we had at least six months, but it was just naive. It's naive when you're dealing with late stage four. It is just naive, and I, you know, I was 42 years old. I, you know, I, I just hadn't expected. Um, I hadn't expected to lose my partner. Um, I think when people are dealing with other family members, they give longer. They, they give a timeline, but I think that, um, I, you know, they might have given Dale a timeline, um, and it scared him so much that he went into a frenzy to do the things he needed to do for himself. And I think he assumed I would, uh, in some ways, part of my resentment of him is that he just assumed I would be fine or I would do what I needed to do to take care of everything without communicating to me enough. I mean, when he got the diagnosis, I I don't think I've said this in an, I might have said this somewhere, but I was in the room with him at, at the hospital and he said, they're, they're, uh, now I'm not even remembering the thing, but he said something like, I've lied to you and I've done some terrible things and I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And so that was, a, that was the first thing he said after we got the diagnosis. Wow. I think, you know, that was like, that was like maybe November 15th, 2014. And so there was so much I felt was impenetrable and hard that I, I think maybe I was afraid to even have conversations with him. I just, you know, it was too, it was a lot mm-hmm. to have those two in this, you know, right after each other. And so talk to me about where the poems were or where the writing process, it seems like maybe you didn't even know if they were going to be poems. They, they started as letters. Um, were they like, I'm, I'm picturing you and Dale in a complicated togetherness, getting this diagnosis and sort of one of you with denial and one of you and, and and him sort of with a more active, like kind of pushing away that that actually the intimacy or the possible intimacy of accompanying someone to the door of death or, you know, however one can be or can't be accompanied, that was, 
that wasn't exactly, I mean, I'm thinking about the anonymous um, and she goes into the underworld and each step along the way, she's told, take off your headdress, take off your chest plate, take off each piece of what makes you a goddess, what makes you powerful, what makes you alive, essentially. And, you know, it's the, her sister, uh, who's queen of the underworld says, you know, if you're going to enter the underworld, you must enter naked and bowed low Mm. and alone um, in, in that sense. So I, I'm thinking of, of Dale sort of kind of from the diagnosis and you being pushed apart a little bit. Um, and I'm wondering where, where the, were the poems away? Were, were they keeping you company? Were, were they initially intended, as you say, with the address to be shared with him and bring him closer? You know, I thought we were closer than we were, but he had so much unfinished business that I gave him a lot of room for it. You know, we were, we were very, very close in lots of ways, but more I realize when you're, when you're close with an alcoholic, you're never as close as you think. And he had kept his daughter at such a distance that I thought the time was for them to really be together and to solve some problems that we had all been having for years. And in some ways, I found that I was like a weird maternal beard for their relationship. Like I was doing a lot of the parenting, uh, getting receiving a lot of the resentment mm-hmm. um, and doing it and trying to solve problems that they were both un, unable to emotionally do. So I ma- tried to make room for for them to be close and to do the work they needed to do. And they did do some of it. I mean, I, I think I, I, I'm, I've recognized a lot. I, I, I seem like this bitter anti-maternal person when I was so invested in that marriage and that family to my own detriment mm-hmm. that I've now recognized that you can you you might lose families in all sorts of different ways and that it's it's not a failure it's not a failure on you know on my part for you know it, that's so i was reflecting on a lot of i i sorry i went into a little bit of a tangent but i i i've reflected on like um those two months as uh, i was hoping reparative work was doing was being done for him mm-hmm. and for asia but i don't think I got any of it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the poems were a way for me to, to try to figure it out because I was, I was very angry and I needed to figure out why anger was my first response when I don't actually think that's who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I feel angry on your behalf often when, you know, rereading and reading the book more about the ways in which I feel like you describe friends and sort of other support uh, or so-called support, not supporting you and Dale properly and, and, and not seeing you, not seeing you as the goddess you are, oh. seeing you instead as like this kind of um, help me or, you know, a chore task worker. Or kick me. <laughs> yeah there is a there's a kick me sign in there but yeah yeah I mean so 
do you feel like the poems have had a reparative effect on you and and if so was it in in having access to writing them in the moment because you've in some ways been training your whole life to have poetry available for you at this moment was it in falling in love and being able to put both of those stories together in making the book and like is poetry reparative i i absolutely think poetry is reparative i mean i think it's about having a having a, a way to speak about you know the things that are unspeakable um having a voice when you know, I, I had been experiencing so much discrimination at University of Montana, and Dale was really my ally in that. And so I it was a deeply ambivalent relationship to have an ally who was this white man who who was protective of his wife and, and the misogyny and discrimination she was feeling um, with, with a mob. But then at the same time, I had no place to put my my feelings about his misogyny and his inability to be more responsible to to the kind of respect he imagined he was giving me. So, but but um, you know, I, I've been vocal enough as as much as I can about um, the experience of being mobbed in my workplace. And it, it really, it was, it was super, it was super demoralizing. And I, it, it was a period of time where I think lots of um, my fellow Asian American writers um, and colleagues were afraid to talk about it happening to them too. So I felt really isolated and I felt like a failure. And I just, but I, but I couldn't be, quiet anymore and so under gloom right before grief sequence was a way for me to speak back and to to start trying to figure out what it what a poetics of the abject and speaking back would look like for me as a south asian you know american poet um just like what what a south asian descent asian american poet uh what could i write that was also uh could theorize the self a little bit um, in ways that uh, were not necessarily a narrative confession, even though I do have narrative poems, but something that I, I could experiment with the lyric and and figure out the politics of an abject lyric. And so in, in Grief Sequence, because they, there were prose poems that disclose, I still wanted to keep um, keep their ambivalence, um, their their needs, their intimacies. I don't know. I, I don't know if I answered your question, but I've just been thinking about, um, I, I guess this is where this, your questions led me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is really important, your, your answer, because I, I'm sort of asking about the possibility of poetry being reparative, and you are really helpfully reminding me this may have been the first time that someone so close to you died but it certainly wasn't the first time anything bad had happened to you and it wasn't the first time that you needed poetry to 
give you a voice or 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 act in this uh, reparative or or possibly act in this reparative way. I'm wondering if you can say a little more about that uh, phrase, abject lyric. Yeah, I guess, you know, um, I started to think in earlier books about a romantic lyric that could have a feminist discourse in it. And then the more and more I stayed in a like an institution of poetry and craft, the more I found that the romantic lyric was too performative. It almost it almost gave me a kind of credibility around a white reader that I knew how to write a poem. And that started to bug me. And so I was like, no, no, I think there's something that where I need to write to my community a little bit more about what we do if we decolonize. And, and I think about colonial poetry for South Asian poets where the idea of prosody is so performative and colonial that I wanted to to think about what's missing is the abject, the shame, the like, how do you, how do you reclaim such a, like a, 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 a lyric that speaks to the world about abjection mm-hmm. um, and stays there and might live there and might be hard to look at. I don't think I and people would always say like, oh, it's not, you know, you say it's abject, but it, it's a little beautiful. And I never know what to do about that because I'm like, well, is it if you if you, you know, if you were if you're recognizing it, you're not saying it's beautiful. Right. Right. I mean, I've thought I I I feel like all the poets that I that, you know, change my life are talking about this issue on some level either, uh, you know, how do we decolonize the lyric? How do we decolonize the classroom? How do we decolonize the self? How do we decolonize the language? How do we survive uh, knowing that there is no way to decolonize these things fully if we're still under capitalism, if we're still under patriarchy? These things all go together. And on top of all of it, you know, white supremacy is designed to keep everybody at odds with each other. Um, Doug Kearney was just talking to me about, you know, his very strong uh, disavowal of purity and anything, you know, that's being marketed or pushed on us uh, as purity. And, you know, you can substitute beauty for that. You can substitute, you know, and I, I, I remember this is in my lecture book that's that's coming out um, next year, but I remember being a graduate student at University of Iowa and Mark Strand came to visit and he was talking about painting and these paintings of the crucifixion and how they're so beautiful and, you know, Jesus is bleeding all over the place and it's so beautiful and transcendent and basically says like art is always beautiful. And so, you know, I'm like, I don't know, 22 years old, I raise my hand. I say, well, what if you want to write something that isn't beautiful because the world isn't beautiful because you want to write about ugliness or you want to write about pain or you want to write about something. And, and he basically said, no, it all transforms. That's what art is. And I just, you know, so that was the end of that. But, you know, I think I spent the next 28, 29 years trying to figure out um, 
the problems around that and not necessarily the solutions, but the questions and how do you hold a space for the abject, for the grotesque, for the um, for pain, for physical pain, emotional pain, for for you know, and and, and we we now have so much more language and consciousness around the problems with mainstreaming, with you know, only promoting or including or looking at the typical, the beautiful, you know, the, the white. Um, but we still don't really, I, I, I don't see enough talking about how all the beautiful, again, like it's so hard, right? All of the forms that can be used to hold the space for what is, um, for not a transformation into something more beautiful or more comfortable mm -hmm. for, for the reader, for the audience, when that's a lie. Um, you know, so, so remind me, what year was the first Thinking Its Presence conference? Yeah, the first, so the I don't know how much I can say, but I will say that I, I was able to uh, settle a lawsuit um, with University of Montana in 2013. I will say this because um, I, I just w will say it. It wasn't very much um, <laughs> at all. I think I, I bought a hot tub. Uh, that's what I could afford. Um, mm -hmm. And the rest went to my lawyer. Mm. Uh, and they said, well, we'll give you $5,000 to bring a person of color or indigenous person to campus because it seems like you were complaining about diversity. So I said, well, if that's the case, I'm going to use the $5,000 to, to run a conference and to bring as many innovative BIPOC people together so that we can support each other and think about what we want as a at a conference that is not trying to be AWP or institutional but but one where we're doing everything that we talk about in the hallways of some of these more established conferences and so that's what what we did and people were gracious enough to come and present and it was fabulous so that was 2014 Dale was alive at that one and then he died um, six weeks before the second one. Oh. Um, yeah, so, so lots of people helped me with that, and I was so grateful. And, you know, I, I, I think at the, at the time, um, you know, I, I just kind of um, asked for money from little sources around the school. And one thing that I did uh, that, I, that I feel really happy about doing was that before, before, um, or actually while I was filing that discrimination suit, I went around to all the people that seemed to be mishandled or peripheral or talked about or gossiped about or ignored and asked them what their experiences were like at the university and to tell me the history of how they got there. 
And it, it really, and so when I built the conference, I tried to include as many people as I could from different spaces and to really think about community as an organic thing where it was also my job to reach out. If I expected people to reach out to me and to see me, I needed to see other people. I don't know how well I did, but I did feel like the connection made a very it made it very deep and meaningful for me to be in the space. And I found that I had a lot of unexpected allies because I, I, I just, I, I've, I've started to connect in different ways. I didn't get, def- I didn't feel defeated by, you know, not having my, you know, creative writing colleagues like me <laughs> or any, you know, so it felt, I mean, even, and, and I got closer with so many of my lit colleagues because I found that the literature that we we're talking about, all the theory, that's that was that was where we were bonding over seeing each other, seeing scholarship as integral to creative work too. I don't know, I guess so that's why the conference came out of the desire to think about what interdisciplinary and innovative practices looked like in spaces where you don't see it. And and a whole bunch of little questions. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, I spoke to a few people who went either once or, or, or both times and they were just like moved beyond their work changed, their thinking, their way of living changed. They, they, you know, they really, and I remember I, I was not able to go. And I remember sort of this, this sense that, well, let's just all stop going to AWP and let's go to this. This is where we want to be and just listen, you know, and, and, um, you know, so I guess I'm wondering, it, you, I, 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 I shouldn't assume, do you feel the same need for this conference and space now than you did then? And like where where did it go okay i'll tell you uh, yeah so we did a third one in tucson and i i put together kind of a informal board we we i think we had a really beautiful conference and it it felt successful on many levels but i think i realized too many too many there were too many cooks in the kitchen and there was an idea for it and i worried that it that it was not really the original mission I had, although the labor that everybody did for it was astounding and I'm so grateful to everybody. It 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 felt like it was getting outside of what it I was very protective of the conference because it was really shoestring and it was my labor of love and it came from a lawsuit and it came from it was the only thing I felt I had from too much abjection. <laughs> so so after that conference, I had to really reflect on on what my desire and relationship is to collaboration, to to um, where it should be. Um, it felt too poetry heavy, and I actually my my mission was actually for poets to discover lots of other people, and I felt that that too many people were missing out on on the other things that that were curated. Mm-hmm. So um, I took, I've taken some time. I got this new job at Pomona College. And when I 
got the job, I asked them if I could host the conference and they were excited about it. So we're actually having the conference here. I'm, I'm running it with the English department and I'll, wait, I'll tell you the name of it. Oh, um, good. Yeah. Um, Originally, it was called Thinking Its Presence, Race, Creative Writing, and Literary Studies. And that uh, Thinking Its Presence is the title of a book, correct? Yes, it's, it's the title of Dorothy Wong's book um, on Asian American subjectivity and poetry. And Dorothy was our first keynote, and she has been involved with the conference ever since. I mean, she's, she, I would say, it is my core kind of board member unofficially because we we grow it together we talk about it we think about it I I, I mean I just um, because I'm honoring her book every year I just want to you know make it clear that intellectually and spiritually and collaboratively she's always with me she's at Williams College um, and she'll you know she'll be she'll be involved this year um, so this, but I also, what I try to do is figure out what the conference is in its location. Mm. And so this year it's called Thinking Its Presence. And the theme is racial vertigo, black, brown feelings, and significantly problematic objects. And it will be March 30th to April 2nd, 2023. One of our keynotes is James Lee, who wrote this book called Pedagogies of Woundedness, Illness, Memoir, and the Ends of the Model Minority. And so here I say, James Lee employs the condition of cruel optimism theorized by the late Lauren Berlant to scrutinize the ambivalent feelings Pauline Shen narr narrates in her memoir, Final Exam, A Surgeon's Reflections on Mortality. Lee further frames Berlant's point by saying that cruel optimism is the condition of maintaining an attachment to a significantly problematic object. The fear is that the loss of the promising object seen itself will defeat the capacity to have any hope about anything. At Thinking Its Presence Conference this year, we have invited Dr. Lee to present his work and to turn his discussion to questions of how BIPOC scholars, writers, activists, historians, and artists manage both hope and its op opposite effective feelings in their work and how attachment to problematic objects, systems, and institutions produce and perpetuate difficult and violent conditions for the psyche and the body. And then we go on further to utilize my colleague here, Dr. Valerie Thomas, who works on racial and diasporic vertigo and is of particular importance in how she talks about how the body incorporates ideas of trauma, displacement, and dispersal that the African diaspora has experienced through the slave trade being uprooted and dislocated and culturally disrupted and traumatized. And that's like one version of vertigo. So I'm, I'm, that's my mission. And then I'm inviting the Claremont Col Colleges, their colleagues and my community at large, I'm gonna send this out to curate 11 panels, um, 11 to 12 panels, but that's what it's gonna look like. Amazing. And is it going to be open to the public or just to Claremont students? It's it's going to be open to the public. Uh, we'll probably have just a small registration fee for for people who are not alumni, students, or faculty of the Claremont Colleges. But it will be open to the public. It'll be much smaller so that people don't have to choose the events. They can go to everything, and everyone can come go to everything together to talk about it. Oh, that's a beautiful model. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes less is more. All these choices. Sometimes I know. very hard to have community. Yeah. I wanted the, the last three to be big so people could be involved. But now I think they know how to be involved with each other so they can come. And there's there's many more writers I've checked in with that I need to formally invite. So I know that I have friends who have gotten little notes from me and I'm going to be incorporating them into this as well. And what, if anything, do you need or would you want to ask for from, you know, so it's basically a year from now. Yes. Um, do you need money? I, I, I mean, I am looking, I think I've maxed out my budget already without even figuring out my logistics. <laughs> um, but I, what I will be doing is looking for partnerships. Um, I, you know, I will be, um, I will be working with different organizations in the Claremont Colleges. Um, I'm hoping to tap into some larger communities as I circulate the mission. So people will start getting a note from me with this mission and I'll be asking for collaboration. Beautiful. I want to go back to yeah. something that you said. Well, I'll go back. Your description of the next conference um, <laughs> brought me back to a question I was going to ask earlier. The idea of attachment to a problematic object um, <laughs> makes me remember that I wanted to talk to you about heterosexuality <laughs> yes. and particularly um, also, I, I mean, I, I myself find heterosexuality very bizarre. Um, it, it is my, it feels like uh, mostly my sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't even know what your you word to use. I was going to use the word natural. That doesn't really seem right. It seems to be my sexual orientation, um, uh, but, but, but not, um, but also not. Well, let me be more explicit. I can't, I can't be completely explicit because my love is, is has children and mm -hmm. they don't yet know about our relationship. Uh, sure, mine do. Sure. But uh, even though I feel like this is the first person that I've fallen in love with, as opposed to the first man that I've mm -hmm. fallen in love with, he is a cis man and it just seems bizarre. It just seems completely bizarre that that heterosexuality makes any sense on a on a level of like how one could maintain uh, could avoid the internalized misogyny and the directed misogyny while in a heterosexual relationship, not even if the, the partner is misogynist. And then on top of it, this is the first person that I've really fallen deeply, deeply in love with, who's not Jewish, um, who's white. You know, I, I'm thinking especially about how complicated it must have been for you to have a real protector, an ally at a time when you were assaulted by this discrimination that's yes, it's complicated. Um, I mean, I think I, it's it 
it's complicated because I think also, you know, his daughter found him to have a lot of misogyny as well as his ex-wife. And so I think I was protecting him from them, but also at the end of the day, in their minds, they're, they've been right all along. Look at me, look at me aligning with, you know, a misogynist. And through a lot of therapy, my therapist was like, you know what, none of them were right. You get to have your, the integrity of your experience of believing somebody. And, and and valuing them the way they wanted you to because that is who you are. Huh. You know, like in some way, yeah. So I value, I, so I, I like protected Dale's wounds that were so deeply connected to misogyny and abuse where I, that was taken out on me. And do I have to feel worse now for giving him the benefit of the doubt for, 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 seeing him the way he wanted to be seen until it take took its toll I, I that's the question I have is um isn't this what's possibly I mean this I'm saying this to myself like isn't this what's good about me is that I try to believe in people <laughs> I'm not saying I'm a chump but I am trying to think about like I don't want to go into the world always seeing the cracks and seeing through people or judging and, 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 and not giving myself a full and rich experience. I, I believed in Dale and that's the reason he attached to me mm-hmm. is maybe he didn't, I don't know who did. And it was, you know, I'm not saying that sounds like martyrdom, but I, I think I do that with lots of people. I have to figure out what that boundary looks like now because it hurts too much and I'm older, but I was 28 and I thought I was seeing a kind of truth of a person who wanted that truth to be real. I'm not, I mean, now I say, I, I mean, I think about me too. And I think about lots of, you know, I think about toxic masculinity. Um, I think about the love I have now. And I do think, um, Mike has had a very rich exploration of 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 um of thinking about relationships and he taught me so much and there's ways in which the texture of who we know and what their life is about um can take on its own hidden space um I know that's like all veiled but you and I will talk about it um but I think what happened is there's a beautiful vulnerability, I think, of people who are, live in the more widowed world of loss. And I think that 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 doesn't talk about heteronormativity, but I, I am talking about ways in which you fall out of the gendered spaces or caregiving or caretaking or loving are different, you know, exist in a different realm. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, in some ways that uh, learning what I could not endure anymore allowed me to be open. I, and I, I'm sad for Dale because he died. And so I'm still living and that's really confusing. And then I think, well, we live the lives we create on some level. Things happen to us too. Um, 
when it's full of toxic masculinity, addiction, abuse, and a lot of pain, I did the best I could with somebody. I tried to love them the best I could. And I believe in love. Is that, I know that's really simple. That is not simple at all. I, 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 I mean, I'm just trying sort of not to break into tears. It's, it, it's both, I think it's both the, the simplest, the hardest, the most profound, you know, I'm just, and I just kind of want to say it out loud again. Like, I, I mean, I, I feel like no phrase better describes my feeling about choosing to leave my very long marriage than I did the best I could. Mm-hmm. And I believe in love. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is, is that also there's this very, I keep asking my love, like, where is the story about us? Where is the story of a subsequent love, uh, of a love that, you know, comes after that, that isn't about marriage and children, that isn't about, you know, youth, (laughs) that isn't about these, all of these other things, but is a different kind of intimacy and attachment that, you know, I always believed in even though I'm not sure I really had any evidence of it anywhere um you know I think about the line I think it's in your it's in the poem I look at your handwriting and this was one of the lines I was reading it in his apartment and I just stopped and it just said because then and suddenly I loved again and it arose against sequential time and this makes loving two persons its own counsel. One followed the other, but there is still yet simultaneity. The other loved me, but had trouble loving, and I had to absorb this after death. There is loving without knowing and loving with so much knowing, two bodies separate in the night after the coupling of evening time. I mean, the the poems, I always wonder how much of reading deeply and well is about just letting the things attach to you wherever you are and how much of it is about like pushing that connection or, 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 or being like, well, I should read this book as if, you know, I'm not just, you know, in this love, but I, but I have to just say like these, these poems in particular, just like I was so grateful to, for them um, because I, I don't really see them elsewhere. You know, Mike saved my life and gave me, I, I, I just found that I, I didn't know how, how for so long I was so stagnant and just, just, you know, I'm what, what you're going through. I imagine what, what was so exciting and intoxicating is, is having all of those feelings stirred up in your body, feeling like your youth is back because you're, ha- you're, you're, you can't, you, you, you know, you, I sounded like a giddy, you know, squirrel girl to everybody. You know, I would talk about 
just the silliest things. And I was so grateful to have that lightness. That lightness was like the most magical thing in the world. And, and to, 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 yeah, just to, to find it again or to find it for the first time. I mean, really, I do feel like loving Mike is loving for the first time. Um, um, I think that when you're younger, you can often just fall into uh, ideas of yourself. You know, you get to a point in your life where you don't fall into things anymore or you try not to. You, when you're falling into things, you're like really upset <laughs> that you've fallen into something, I think. I, or this is how I feel. Um, so so the con- being conscious of my feelings and the excitement of what can happen next was just, I, I, I just, I, I, I've, you know, I mean, we're still crazy in love and it's seven years and we're facing this cancer. But the fact is we just... The love is so sacred and he, and sacred. He would wince. He's just like, could you, do, must you call it sacred? <laughs> but I know he, I know he agrees with me. So I, I do feel like I thought that I had a kind of love because it was endurance, mm-hmm. but that's not now when I've, there were just no, there were never any red flags at all. And I I can wake up every day and be grateful for no red flags. I mean, our big red flag is cancer, which there's nothing we can do about. And we, you know, um, but it makes us really hold on tight. Anyway, I'm just sort of, and that became so exquisite to just, um, the one beautiful thing about grieving is I gave up time for a a while because I was so shell-shocked. But when we fell in love, it's like I had, I had figured out that I could have time, and then bringing our time together was, was gorgeous. So I'm just saying, like, it is. I'm so happy for you because it's just it's so hard won, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thank you for being happy for me. Um, I, I remember having a hard time being happy for other people who had found love when I felt so deprived and so in this scarcity economy. And, but I was in love with my family. Mm-hmm. I was in love with having made a family with Josh. And I was in love with the idea of Josh and with the idea of, of, you know, and with who we were when we met, um, I, I, not necessarily in love with that, but just a lot of um, sympathy for, for those people. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I was lying in the hospital and, you know, waiting in the weeks that I was waiting to have the surgery that I didn't even end up having at the very last moment, I didn't end up needing it, but doing all of those tasks of changing who my health proxy was of making sure my will was correct and um, making sure the divorce was final and 
you know, knowing that I was going to go in for this surgery and I was going to wake up and I was going to find out if it was ovarian cancer and or not and what the treatment was going to be um, was a, truly a gift for me because it clarified so many things and it wiped away a lot of the shame and the guilt that I felt about disrupting my kids' lives, not having been able to make the marriage work. And, and really my priorities were so clear. And I don't think I could have entered into this love until I got there. And, you know, what a miracle for me that I did have more time after that. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have no idea, you know, how much time I have or he has or any of us has, um, which is very different from, you know, having a cancer diagnosis and not knowing how much time. But it's what a what a miracle, like really. So thank you for, for, for being happy for me. And, and, and it's oh. so funny because like now, not only do I feel so grateful to have my love's love and to love, but I just feel like I love everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want everybody to find their love or, and whether it's a person or a thing or an animal or, you know, just, yeah, I, 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 I feel like it's kind of as simple as that. And this is a, this is a very, as you said, conscious, grown up, sober part of my life. And, and also so ridiculously like, I mean, I, I, I in a way I feel like this is the girlhood I never had. Like, yes, you should have it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to you, back to you. If you'd want to read maybe one of the poems, uh, Abide. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Abide because it, it's one of the first uh, love poems I wrote for Mike. Ab Abide. You've gone to get a haircut in Kirkland, but before you left, you rubbed my arms to warm them out of the blankets with a dearness that I thought I would never find. When you grow older, I fret that you too will die. You will tell me that I conflate the stars with tombs. I sang you earth, wind, and fire's reasons, and we folded into the Delphonics, didn't I blow your mind this time? And I said, you don't even know you did. You were too modest to even think you could, and you know somewhere hidden, we live now to solve our soft hearts problems which come from the fallen places where they are the raconteurs who died on us. They took up the largesse of the art of death, but we don't care who had the better lover, the better spouse, the kinder or more considerate one. Now we can just take this morning and stretch out a line of aporia, an aphoristic single-sided horizon of trees, buildings, and sky. Oh, I just love that so much. Um, how did you meet Mike? Oh, so it's funny. So, okay. So just going back to 2009, you know, my, my, my dad had a really complicated situation where he lost his job as the president of a college. It was very much a discriminatory thing. 
And so we knew we were going to have to fight uh, that and get get a lawyer. And so in 1996, I bought my condo in Brooklyn for $60,000. I mean, that's like the, a Carroll Gardens apartment for 60000 That was like the best thing I ever did in my life. Um, and so I borrowed the money from my mother's friend and we paid her back. And, and then my father said, he's going to need the money uh, for his lawsuit. So I needed to sell the condo. So I did. Um, and then he ended up being okay. He, he was able to kind of rebuild his business. He ended up being okay. So he said, look, um, maybe you want to invest a little bit of that money. Um, and I found that I was so um, just, I, I was really feeling alienated in Missoula and I kept fantasizing about how can we get away. So I told Dale, let's get in the car and go to Seattle and let's look and see if there's a condo there and you can make your art or maybe you can consult or maybe you can have a business in, you know, in doing more like sound you know, and producing there. So I just kind of was developing an idea. Anyway, I saw an advertisement of condos online and there was like a very non-traditional theater space that some guy had listed. So I wrote him and said, do you know of any non-traditional spaces like the one you have listed here? And it was Mike. And so so he was our realtor and he sold us this condo um, in Belltown that was... Um, um, that, that he, yeah, he even gave me his commission because I was ready to walk away. Um, cause I wasn't sure. And I, it was just, I felt confused about the whole thing. Um, I mean, it was a privilege to be con- confused about it, but I, I thought I was making a good investment, but I was also nervous about it. Cause anyway, we stayed in touch with him. Um, he sent newsletters. I thought he was an odd kind of solitary, sad guy. And Dale would always say he's very deeply sad. Um, but then after Dale died, I I was in Seattle for the first time. Uh, I had the last time I had been with Dale, um, and I asked him if he wanted to have a drink because I wanted to meet with with widowed people to talk to about, talk how, about they... how they grieved. And he had reached out to talk about Marie, and Marie is a whole other story, um, but we had started talking a little bit about Marie, and he wanted to share her story. And so we had like a five-hour drink where he just was, just became my friend. Mm. And we um, I, we just f- fell into talking all the time and having like nine-hour conversations a week. And he's very quiet, so it, it was a strange occurrence that we would just, you know, we were we were doing that like, you know, eight thirty p.m. to two in the morning, breathing on the phone together and not addressing what was going on between us. We just became very attached to each other, and finally, I pursued him. Maybe, you know, I, I we started talking in May, and I just I just confronted him with my feelings in October of that year. And actually we had a commitment ceremony October 2nd, cause that's the day that we, um, we kind of got together. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh. But he was going to just let us be, you know, he just thought the grief was talking all the time. So he just gave me space. Mm. 
and he didn't know how he felt about me. I'm not really his type, um, and he's not my type, but we ended up being so perfectly each other's type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that wild? And, yeah. and I know, you know, this, this is something that comes up a lot um, in the book that you're not a religious person. And yet, how do you explain these things? You know, it's complicated because I, you know, I, this new book I've, I've written that I, I gave Joshua. So we'll see what he says. It's called One Mint One, um, which I've, I'm thinking of actually, I mean, Barnett Newman has a series from his one mint series. This is, this is, um, one mint, um, six, but I, but one mint one was, was the one that I, I first looked at. Um, and so my book title is one mint instead of the number one, it's W O N. So one mint one. And so in some ways, if we're thinking about religion, um, the concept of one mint or oneness, um, is, is in Hinduism. Um, I think what happened is that my, my father is a Hindu priest and, and, you know, he cremated Dale. He married me to Dale. He did my commitment ceremony uh, with Mike. Um, it's just that I see it more philosophically. And I found that when I was addressing death, I don't think religion really helped me. I think, I, I don't know if I believe in the afterlife I did for a little while when I was doing some cremation rituals, but it felt a little manufactured or too um, magical for me. So atheism is where I settle into when I don't have answers, but, but my spirituality feels intact and my ideas of philosophy feel intact and my idea of one of feeling whole and thinking about um, what might, what are the rituals to feel whole, feel spiritual. So, you know, it's also that I, I love my parents so much and they're so religious, but they don't seem to, and I love that. And I hope my dad, they, they don't seem to have the answers. Um, mm-hmm. They don't seem to necessarily have them for themselves through religion. So I'm just confused. My the third thing I want to say about being a Hindu is that I am really disappointed. At, going back to what Doug Kearney said about purity, I'm really disappointed with you know like Hindu supremacy and Hindutva and um, and uh, casteism and so I I'm not taking the same kind of pride in being a Hindu that that it's too scary and too pure you know it's it's reliant on too much purity. And it feels too, and so I'm not quite sure what I've learned from Hinduism other than stories and myths. And and I do have a sense of ethics that I do know comes from Hinduism, but I'm still trying to sort it all out. And I think I want to think about it philosophically. So I, I this new book is trying to map out like, Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Oh, so you have a full draft of the book? I do, and, yeah. And gave it, right. Gave so it to, yeah. Do you want to read anything from it or? 
Oh yeah, I can read. I've read. I've been. I can read a, a poem. Um, let me just find it. Um, let's see here. Let's see if I can find it though. This is the. Oh, you know what? I'm gonna find it on my phone, like my students do. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. I know how to find it another way now. Yeah, I have a poem. I have two poems in Harp and Altar. The recent, um, the recent Harp and Altar, um, winter 2022, um, and this poem, I think. Um, speaks to both Barnett Newman and ideas of one mint and other things that we've talked about actually. Um, and I think the manuscript actually opens with this poem. Uh, so the, the poem is a one, one. And so it's, it's, um, I write out the number one and then it's W O N a one, one in it. I found that the political discourse would love its ethical moon a wonderment, a one-sum, bewitching affinities built upon antinomies, abstract, an expression, a wool cap of ornament for the sake of weather, loving him helplessly anew helped, loving her helplessly anew helped, leaving it all behind helplessly helped, building around the moribund became a kind of blessing. I left the constituents around the number one, and I won, and I felt simple or glad, or finely incandescent, or comfortably large in my honesty, a kind of hanging of the rituals, the clothes, the sense of living in them upright. I felt trouble pinging from my thumb muscles, but I ignored the throb. I looked out and out into the dense and driven fog and said goodbye to its flavor. I said goodbye to more than 10 years of saying, will you please love me? I wanted to birth a kind of abstract expressionism of the merely objective and the racialized lover of things. One mint or ornament, or I won an ornament, or I loved an ornament, and the one mint of myself, of myself resolved. I resolved, and thus I became into myself a one that I thought would never be allowed. And I moved outside of the fog into a place that signified art. Hmm. Oh, oh my! I, so, I, I, what's going to happen to me? I need these poems right now. Oh, well, oh. that one's published, right? In, yes. Uh, yes. Okay. So that's good. Um, oh, I'm 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 just so excited. And tell me, are these poems in sequence? Are they are, no, are they separate? The they're all separate. I mean, the other poem you'll see at, in Harp and Alter, like just is, is a tough one, which I'm not going to read, but we can talk about it. It is about white fragility and friendship. So I do start talking more about race and feminism and disappointment and anger and false friends. Like, I think I go deeper into it in this new book. Um, and, good. And so I kind of try to, I try to look at, 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 being angry and racialized, but also trying to center myself in my anger. I think that I, I'm only speaking about my community, but I think with I, I, South Asian writing, I, I just want to try to figure out if I can be in company with the stuff that's not talked about. And, and, and if we're thinking about model minority things, like I, I just have held it in for too long. And so I'm trying to, and also I think there's lateral violence to talk about um, that, you know, BIPOC um, have to, you know, figure out their relation to each other and be more intersectional rather than top-down stuff. 
and with women too, you know? So I'm just trying to, I'm writing about that stuff. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, a few questions. Um, yeah. In, uh, do you have other poets, books of poetry, or even artists who are also keeping company with these things that are not talked about? You know, Brenda Shaughnessy came to mind when I was thinking about the false friends um, mm. and some of the ways in which she writes about anger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, uh, Sandra Lim, who's coming next week, I love the way um, she, she kind of dissects a relational moment or uh, teases out something harder of, about a moment. Um, Divya Victor is somebody I, you know, I, I love the new book. Um, I love Curb. I've loved Kith. Um, we're always, we're kind of talking about these things. We, we talk about lateral violence. I, I think I'm finding like a really rich South Asian community of people. I've, you know, I've, I'm getting to know or known and we're, we're getting, we're, we're confessing more about those, those. Um, harder feelings. I mean, I, you know, I talked with Kathy Park Hung in minor feelings about things that I experienced, you know, um, and, and that was really helpful. I think she gave me a voice to stuff that I thought was hard. Uh, so I'm grateful to her. I'm grateful for the work she's doing. I think it's just trying to, you know, I, I, Dorothy Wong and I are talking about white fragility and I mean, something interesting, Rachel, that you and I should talk about is the neutrality of the lyric, the white lyric. Yeah. Um, and the pro and 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 how ultimately that beauty makes a violence, but it it gets so rewarded. I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm not trying to. There, there's some. There's some older white women who have written a certain way, and and we're expected to kind of follow in their footsteps. And some of them are really loved, but I've often found the lyric to to be a little too neutral for me. Yeah. Oh, I mean. This is the dumbest way to talk about it, but I have this weird thing where, so in my current state of wonderful love, he's not the first person to ever say anything nice to me, but it feels like that because he's oh. the first person I believe. Oh. Um, and that's really interesting because, you know, it, it makes it more, it makes me less, I, I'm also responsible for, you know, for not feeling beautiful, for not, you know, for feeling too much, for feeling, you know, all of these things. But one of the things I notice is that, um, you know, when we're together, it's amazing. Um, when we're not together, it's difficult and the transitions are difficult. Oh, yeah. And before I see him, uh, when I know I'm going to see him, but before I see him, I have this like weird body dysmorphia thing where I'm like, wow, it's been three days since I've seen him. How is it that I've become an old and ugly? Like I, and I look in the mirror and that is what I see. Like I can't, I can't somehow get back to like how he sees me 
or even a more realistic version of how I am. And there's something that feels very connected to me about the way that the lyric, it's like a false, um, I don't know. It's I, I it, it makes me also remember being in Jory Graham's office when she was my thesis advisor and she would say all of these wonderful things about my poems and I would be like, "Yes, oh, they're so good. Oh my god." And I'd leave her office and it would just disappear. Like there was there was no substance. The the poems themselves did not have it. It was almost like the the poems only existed in this transformational state within her gaze mm -hmm. the lyric only had you know the the the, the male gaze the mm -hmm. white gaze is what is determining the beauty of the lyric like the the and i think that's part of i love your use of the word neutrality for it because if it's neutral it can be co-opted so easily by these forces that are wanting me to like buy things and be afraid of other people and not love. You know, it was Dorothy's new word neutrality. I just want to give her credit because in some ways, everything you've just said is, is sort of what you get coaxed into. I mean, is that gaze, but I also think what you're saying that's, that's coming out in in sort of sideways is the ambition to push for more, whether it's, you know, getting at more truth or feeling solid um, with your own gaze back at yourself. But I do think that maybe we have kind of been duped with this neutrality into not being able to get further into some of the other topics or the needs or the desires or the sustaining um, credibility of ourselves, you know? Yeah. And I think this, this notion of like transforming the real or whatever it is, right? Like, uh, was it Sienna guy's book, um, ugly feeling? Yeah. 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 Right. Like how do we, I mean, we have them. <laughs> yes. I think, I think if we're alive, we have ugly feelings. Um, we, and, and particularly, you know, if you have been, um, you've spent your whole life um, in a, in a system that is trying to kill you and defame you and demean you and belittle you and, you know, make things almost impossible uh, how are you not going to have, uh, I mean, it, it would be bizarre if, if, if in that situation you didn't have ugly feelings to say the yeah, least, Yeah. but then to be pressured into turning them into something basically that a white audience can relate to, enjoy, you know, uh, cry over, but just enough, just enough is, is really, and, th and this, these are deeply, deeply embedded in all of our creative writing programs, in the gatekeeping mechanisms at the publishers and at the academy and, you know, all of these things, it's really hard to break out of them. You know, we were all taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by basically white men. 
do you feel like your own writing and your own kind of mental and emotional space how has how have those changed since you've been since you have escaped left actively left montana i mean i i i really really appreciate my colleagues and my environment and my community here i i feel like i was given a second chance to thrive um i would have stayed at montana and did the best i could there but 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 Pomona's been a, a really good place. My my colleagues are really brilliant. Um, Valerie Thomas and Keila Tompkins, and, and we have two new poets. Um, Shireen Sherard Johnson and Ahmad Johnson are here. Um, so it's just really, it's really fun to think about poetry here and theory. And we're a, we're, we're, we're a department that, um, and Jonathan Lethem is here and he's lovely. And we're a department that has comfortably merged theory and in creative writing. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, there's some theory wars and there's some difficulty, um, like lots of institutions have. Um, and so it, it has to do a lot more work for some of my colleagues. So I won't, I, you know, I came from one particular place to another. So I have a different experience of Pomona. Um, so there, you know, I think about you know, Claudia citizen. And I, I do think about the history of this place and, and what it has done for black and brown bodies that has been really problematic. But I think for me, I've, I've, I've wanted to come in and, and try to support and hear and listen and have community. And I've been, I've been met there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel seen and I feel supported and I try to do the same. And the students are wonderful and I miss the mountains um, of of the West of that of that West, but I I do love I love the resources too. So I have resources that I didn't I didn't have at Montana. I mean, although what I'm thrilled about is that a, a professor who had been here, I think over ten years ago, will now be the new provost next year at Montana. Um, so I think things will change there. What either books, resources, or practices would you recommend for, for people who are going through um, the grieving and the mourning period, particularly people who consider themselves mostly secular or atheist? Mm-hmm. But I also want to ask you which resources or practices or books or pieces of art you might recommend for either someone who's teaching in an MFA program or in, 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 in anywhere or a student and who is basically being assaulted by discrimination and, and is maybe not able, doesn't have the means um, to bring a lawsuit and, and not that a lawsuit is easy, but, you know, is really stuck. Um, can't move out of that space. And I, and I, I, w- I was just thinking about the epigraph to Grief Sequence by Roland Barthes, um, not to suppress mourning, suffering, the stupid notion that time will do away with such a thing, but to change it, transform it, to shift it from a static stage, stasis, obstruction, recurrences of the same thing, to a fluid state. So I'm thinking of 
okay, we can't solve these things. Certainly in the moment as individuals, we can't solve these things. We can't solve death. We can't solve institutional um, and, or individual systemic racism. But what could, what, what possibilities are there to change things into a fluid state so that at least there's movement, not the suppression and not the, uh, not being flooded, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's so many different resources. I guess what I, I want to say, like a really important takeaway for me, um, I found a lot of resources. There's like a, there's, there's books like Presumed Incompetent, which collects stories and testimonies. Um, there's um, lots like Math Matthew Salaces talks about craft in his new fiction book on craft. Uh, there's so many ways to think about decolonizing, you know, craft in the workshop, and and I think we can find a lot. But I I will say, what ends up I, I want to talk about the lateral violence that happens. So often, sometimes we'll um, a person like us, another person of color, or if we think about you know a, another woman, and they let us down because there's still too many power alliances. And so, so then you get kind of wounded again because you're trying to have a voice and you're trying to align. People don't talk about the lateral violence where you disappoint one another and so you don't take care of one another. So I would say, um, you know, align with people who understand both their privilege, understand the power, and are safe enough that they have nothing to lose when they try, that they want to help you. I think the people who helped me took themselves out of strategies of power and saw me for me. And I try to do that with people. Um, I also, if I'm not going to just work to point out everything wrong, like that, that's wrong for them, I want to try to help their career or their path. I think often people... They don't mean to, but they end up using each other for their own, you know, problem. But then they don't, they could leave somebody out to dry, you know, and not, and not need them anymore. You know, I've seen a lot of that. People have alliances over fighting something, but then are not there for each other to support the work of, of lifting that person up through their, through their work, through who they, what makes them vibrant I believe. So I know I sound really, you know, it's just like sometimes we just stay in it to fight and then we don't support each other with vibrance. You know, I, if I'm doing well, then I'm just going to try to help my friends do well. And sometimes they need that rather than just like, you know, having one, like seven meetings where we're going to fight all the time. And then, you know, and then we're just, you know, licking our wounds separately. I don't know if that made any sense, but right. Or one person gets the job, yeah. you know, because, because, you know, there's been a good fight to make yeah. sure that one person gets a job, but it's, you know, it's yeah. Supporting each other with vibrancy. That's gorgeous. And, you know, recognizing that it's precarious. So like, I, you know, I have friends and I, you know, like I, uh, this is a longer conversation and we can, this is like you and I need a cocktail, 
But it's like, I sometimes feel like I've supported people and then they've gotten to where they've needed to go and they've just kicked me to the curb. And I see it all in relation to power. And then I'm like, you know what? It's not fair for me to diminish myself because I'm seeing the gaze, the power gaze through somebody else's eyes. So I don't want to do that to people. You know, I want to keep my ego in check. Yep. Yeah. Which, which we're really not trained to do and we're not rewarded for. And, you know, and, and I, I think one of the ways that I've kind of overcome white, white fragility to the, to the extent that I have, I still have a lot of white fragility is to, is to be angry about Mm -hmm. some things. And I've been so sort of, um, no one likes an angry woman. I know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that, but that anger, at least for me has been necessary in figuring out how to be more loving and supportive in a long-standing, long-term committed way to my peers, to my colleagues, to my students, to, to, to strangers even, you know, it's, yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think just, you know, recognizing it's precarious. Yeah. And yeah. Anything that I didn't ask you that you were really hoping I would, or anything you want to ask me before the, the, you know, the recording goes off. Um, I mean, this has been, I feel like I got so, so much, um, but anything. No, this seemed, this is just lovely. I'm looking forward to just um, continuing our conversations and um, I'm just grateful for this time. I, I really think we covered so much that I, I want to just savor it and reflect on it. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's talk soon. Yes. And you really, I just want to thank you just one more time for your time, but also for the book, which just came to me at this really, really meaningful time. Um, and yeah, I'm just really grateful. Thank, thank you. you, Rachel. Thank you so much, Rachel. I can't wait to to talk about all the wonderful things that we covered. <laughs> wonderful. Okay. You've been listening to episode 101 of Commonplace with Pragita Sharma. The fourth Thinking Its Presence conference, Racial Vertigo, Black Brown Feelings, and Significantly Problematic Objects, will take place March 30th through April 2nd, 2023 at Pomona College. After this outro, you'll hear a clip of Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso speaking with poet Rupi Kaur. After that, stay tuned for a short testimonial about how Commonplace has impacted one of our listeners. If you have a favorite Commonplace moment or something you'd like to share, please record an audio message and email it to us or reach out to us via Google Voice or SpeakPipe, both of which you can find on our website. If you'd like to contribute financially to the collaborative undertaking that is Commonplace, please visit commonpodcast.com. This episode was produced by me, 
Valentin Conady, Christine LaRusso, and Langa Chinyoka. Many thanks to Wave Books, Fence Books, Sub Press, Stanford University Press, Catapult, and all the presses who give us their wonderful books. The music you're listening to was composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker-Gorin. Thank you to all the patrons who support Commonplace. And thank you, listener. Thank you for listening. As I was writing Milk and Honey, I went from girl to woman through that book. Then writing became a very scary and triggering thing. Like, I couldn't walk into bookstores. I didn't want to hear the word poetry. I didn't even want to hear the word book. Like, people would say that, and my entire body would just, like, because it was so many things. Like, when when is the next one coming? And, like, how do I recreate the success of the first one again? And, like, that ate at me and just made me so sick. People expect you to do that. Two months, I was given to write the second book. And of course, I did not meet that deadline. But then all of a sudden, everyone's like, well, you know, if you don't hurry up, if you take a break, you're just here today, gone tomorrow. And Homebody, the third one, is about me trying to actually be like, let me write the book that I need to write. Because The Sun and Her Flowers was the book that I thought the world wanted me to write. You said... With the first book, I kept thinking, is this all a mistake? Am I just a one-hit wonder? Then the second book happened, and I realized that I can do this a third, fourth, and fifth time. I just want to give it time. I just want to create the best thing going forward. When I'm 89 years old, lying in my bed somewhere, I want to feel good about what I've done. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're on your way to being that? 89-year-old now. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I promised myself I'm never going to sign another book contract. (laughs) That has freed my creativity. They get the book when I tell them they're getting the book, and they will be happy with the book that they get. (laughs) That's the rule. And um, it's allowed me to become creative again. I don't tense up when I hear the word poetry, and I'm falling back in love with the thing that people say they love me for. And so it's so funny because it took so long to get there. But um, I mean, I already wrote a fourth book, but only because I had to free myself from the ability to do so, you know, learn to get off the train and then like hop back on with a nice coffee, get off in a couple stops, smell the flowers and then get back on sort of thing. Well, I wish that for you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Ruby Kaur, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. My name is Noah. 
I live in New York City in the United States. I was a stranger on a dating app who met Rachel on a dating app. And we proceeded to date for a hot minute. Um, before I met her, she let me know that she had a podcast. And when she sent me the link and I saw it was about poetry, my first reaction was, yep, I'm probably never going to meet her. Um, and I really don't want to listen to anything about poetry. Um... But she was cute in her photos, and I do kind of have a fetish for uh, Terry Gross. And between listening to the first five minutes of the podcast and seeing her pictures where she looked like a sexy Terry Gross, I was like, okay, don't be close-minded. And after listening to the first episode, I had to uh, question my, uh, my opinions and beliefs about poetry. Because like many other people who uh, reject things unthinkingly, um, I thought poetry is one of these artsy-fartsy arts of people who aren't good at anything else and kind of have this opinion of poets as people who are narcissists who don't really... Uh, contribute to society but after listening to it it clicked it's like oh poetry is actually synonymous with philosophy and psychology and emotional well-being and mental health and people and art and artists who actually like to live and experience things and it kind of flipped a switch, um, which made me automatically want to meet Rachel. Um, so much so that uh, I uh, wanted to make a good impression on her, and I made her dessert even before I met her. Um, I My main hobby is I'm a distance cyclist, and I like to listen to podcasts and books and music on uh, my headphones while I go out for an entire day and uh, Commonplace is now one of the regular podcasts I listen to now why I listen um, well part of it it began with uh, getting to know this woman Rachel Um, then it began then as we were dating and after it was oh uh, I'm actually interested in the content and hearing how the minds of the people she's interviewing works. And lately, uh, as my relationship with Rachel changed, I kind of want to hear more about her and her life because she hinted at uh, issuing something personal about what's going on with her, which I have an idea of, but don't have the details. But um, I really want to hear it. I mean, as I already mentioned, I've gotten, regardless of my personal relationship with Rachel, um, I've found the podcast to actually expand my mind in a way that is in league and in good timing and rhyming with other factors in my life, 
One is the pandemic of, as with a lot of people, have caused us to look inwards because it is dangerous to go outside. And the other side of it is a very big shift in my perspective uh, of taking things in. And commonplace is a really good source to uh, kind of shape that new elasticity that my brain has come to have, or not my brain, my mind has come to have over the last year or two. I wish we'd come out on a regular schedule, even if it was like once a month or something. And when Rachel hints at personal things, I wish she'd get more personal. She doesn't have to spend a whole podcast talking about herself. But when she interviews people, it's good to know more about her own angle and perspective. And, you know, um, I think that'll just bring more to the podcast and make people... Uh, understand why she questions what she questions and um, blah 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 but I'm hoping to sit down with her in person and just have the kind of conversation we had before, during and slightly after we dated Um, I miss that because uh, I think Rachel is now a good friend of mine, but, you know, it's a little bit touch and go because she's quickly entered a new romantic relationship and she's kind of had rethought her approach to dating. While I have a more of a stable fixed view and I'm not changing that fast, but I want to keep her in my life. Uh, I just enjoy talking to her and I enjoy listening to her.